Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall. And on this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast, I sat down with Peter Docker to talk all about his newest book, Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. Peter is passionate about enabling people to unlock their natural talents. He teaches leadership that is focused on commitment and human connection. This approach harnesses the collective wisdom of teams to generate extraordinary outcomes. He illustrates his insights by drawing on examples from his previous industry, flying in military careers to explain powerful concepts that can be applied in any business. Peter is a trained leadership consultant and executive coach, and he has also worked with Simon Sinek for over seven years and was one of the founding igniters on Simon's team. He took his years of practical experience to co-author Find Your Why, a practical guide for discovering purpose for you and your team with Simon and David Mead. Published in September 2017, it has been translated in over 25 languages and has sold over 420,000 copies. Wow. Peter brings a tremendous amount of expertise, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as we talk about his newest book, Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall, and I am so excited to welcome Peter Docker to the podcast. You heard a tremendous bio. Wow. Peter, you have had quite the career, and I just want to start off by saying thank you so much for donating your time, your expertise, and your passion for leadership with the Leadership Habit audience. We are so happy to have you. Jen, it's a delight to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Great. Peter, we're going to be talking about a lot of things today. I know we're going to get into your book, Leading from the Jump Seat, but before we get into your book, which people, I mean, I know they want to hear more. We heard that teaser in the bio. If you could just share how you came to be, what, what's your journey like that led you to today, being now the author, and I know this isn't even your first book, being now the author of Leading from the Jump Seat, if you could just share with their audience your experience that led you to where you are today. Good heavens. Well, first of all, Jen, I'm old. So, you know, it's quite a long story, I guess. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, let, let, let's start when I joined the Royal Air Force in my early 20s. I joined the Royal Air Force as a pilot, as an officer, and I spent 25 years in the Royal Air Force. I flew large aircraft, passenger jets, and also air refueling aircraft that carried gas to, to give away to fighter jets. And during my time, I led squadrons. I was a force commander. Uh, leading people in combat during the 2003 Iraq war. I negotiated with the Russians when the Berlin Wall came down on behalf of NATO. Good heavens, what else have I done? Oh, I taught leadership at the Defence College to um, the postgraduate level uh, here in the UK. I've, um, well, I've led $20 billion procurement programs, and that took me to uh, Washington to negotiate your State Department so all sorts of wonderful things, the Royal Air Force. But then after about 25 years, I thought there's more I could do. So I, I left um, after, as I say, just 25 years. I joined a consultancy and that had got nothing to do with flying or the military, but it had everything to do with people. And what we did, we worked, it was a consultancy, we worked in high risk environments such as oil and gas, mining, construction, where people typically got killed and injured. And what we helped them to do was create cultures, create a way of leading which ensured that everyone went home safely at the end of each day. So that took me to the Middle East, it took me to Africa, it took me to places like Kazakhstan, 
But then after about three years, I thought there's more I could do. So I left that uh, job and um, I started my own business, bringing together everything that uh, I'd learned. And it was around about that time I came across a fellow called Simon Sinek. And long story short there, he's known pretty well for uh, the books he's written, but I spent eight years with Simon helping him to take his message around the world. And in the process, I co-wrote the book Find Your Why with Simon and David Mead, uh, which has done really rather well. But after about eight years, I thought there's more I could do. So I left. That was another crossroads. And I sat down. I drew together everything I've learned through all the experiences I've had in my life. Uh, the privilege of that, visiting 93 countries, uh, working with every industry you can imagine. And I've brought it all together, all the leadership lessons, and put them in this book, Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring together everything I'd learned and share it with other people so they can benefit from it too. What do you think, and this is more of a personal probe, because leadership lessons can be hard to learn. Sometimes it can be that we had to let someone down. Sometimes we might have felt like we let ourselves down. What was one of the hardest leadership lessons that you learned? Hmm. That's that's a really good question, because I, I think leadership lessons can be very hard to learn. And... We don't always learn them because we don't give ourselves permission to sit and reflect. And I've been lucky in that I've dedicated several years to sitting and reflecting, not only on my own leadership lessons, but what I've um, and mistakes, but what I've learned from from others as well, from the boardroom. You know, so that that's the first thing. Having the opportunity to reflect, I, I think, is really important. I, I think one of the greatest things I've learned is it sounds very simple but it's actually very tough. Um, And it's around leading yourself because life's a journey to learn how to lead yourself. And the more we invest in that, uh, the better able we are to lead others. And as part of leading yourself, I think one of the greatest lessons is to learn how to be yourself. You know, that's the simple thing. Many, many years ago when I was going through officer training for the Royal Air Force, I remember one of my trainers saying, you know, be yourself as an officer, just be yourself. And at the time, at the age of 20, 21, I, I didn't really fully get it, you know, but it was much later on in my career where the penny really dropped. And I realized that, yeah, you've just got to be yourself because, well, everybody else is taken, first of all, you know, <laughs> but uh, when you're, when you're yourself, it builds trust, it builds relationship. And um, whoever that person is, when you're being yourself, that is the, the greatest foundation on which to build your own leadership, whether it's leading yourself or leading others. My gosh. So those that are listening, even if you're maybe not feeling confident, you're looking to the left, looking to the right, trying to figure out who you should be. The answer is right inside. I love that. Learning how to be yourself, which is a challenging lesson because it's easy to compare or think, am I getting it wrong if I'm not doing what that person is doing and what that person is doing? Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think we often don't talk about the fact that we all struggle with that and that it is challenging. But I want to get into your book because there are so many fantastic lessons. But first, why, why the title, Leading from the Jump Suit? Why, how, how did you come about picking that title? Hmm. It, it was it, inspired by a story. 
And there's lots of stories in this book, but every story has got a, a purpose to it, a point to it. This story goes back to when I was still in the Royal Air Force. I was a senior officer and I was a senior pilot. And we're flying large passenger jets at the time, the sort that you might go on holiday, on vacation in, you know, carrying about 140 people. And on this particular day, I was checking, doing the final certification of this new captain. Uh, his name was, was Callum. And he'd been a first officer for many years, but he'd just gone through about six months of training to equip him to become the captain, the guy in charge of the whole aircraft and all the safety of all the passengers. And the final part of that training was for someone like myself to be part of his crew and monitor him as we flew from the UK over to Washington, Dulles, and then on to San Fran. And he did a great job. We landed in San Francisco, very busy place, landed in San Francisco, taxied in, shut down, the passengers got off, and it was great pleasure. I could turn to him and I say, Callum, great job. You're fully certified now as a captain. We're stopping here the night, but tomorrow morning we've got a full, full passenger load of, of people on the aircraft. I'll be down the back with them. You'll have a regular co-pilot. You fly us back to Washington, tell us. And that was a great moment, as you can imagine, because he really worked hard for this uh, qualification, this certification. Anyway, the following morning, I was just reading a magazine. He came up to me. He said, excuse me, sir. And he's called me sir because I was very senior in rank to him. You know, it was that differential. But nonetheless, he came up to me and said, look, it's really busy here out of San Fran uh, during rush hour. Can you come and sit on the jump seat to help watch out, make sure we go the right way and watch out for other aircraft as we taxi to the runway? Because we don't go there very often. And I, I said, yes, of course. I thought at the time, how courageous that was because remember he just got me off his back after six months and this was his opportunity just to you know do his thing but no he was connected to the higher purpose in this case the safety of everybody on that aircraft and so he wanted me to sit on the jump seat to help look out and the jump seat is the third seat on the flight deck of most large aircraft it's usually empty but crew members can sit there and when you're sat there you can touch the pilots on the shoulders you're that close and you got a great view out the front of the aircraft. So that's where he wanted me to sit. So I strapped in. We tacked it out. He did a great job. He didn't need me, but he, he did great. We lined up on the runway. We had clearance to take off. We thundered down the runway. And we'd only just climbed to about three or 400 feet. We'd just taken off. And we had an emergency. And Callum was wrestling with the controls, desperately trying to keep us away from the ground. And what I chose to do in the next couple of seconds would fundamentally affect whether I and everybody else, the 140 people on board, would survive or not. And here's the thing. I did absolutely nothing. <laughs> I sat there with my hands in my lap, perfectly calm, because in that moment, I didn't need to lead. In that moment, I needed to become a great follower. I needed Callum to feel that I had his back, to feel quite rightly that I had confidence in him to sort out that problem. And look, what business would I have I had the day before signing him up as a fully certified captain if I didn't think he could handle any problem that came his way? I just needed to stay out of his way and let him do his job. And that's what prompted the, the title, Lean from the Jump Seat, because, you know, 
we all hand over control at some stage in our life. You know, if we're the CEO of a company, we will retire. If we're leading a team, we'll move on to another team. Heck, even as a parent, which, by the way, is one of the toughest leadership challenges many of us will face, even as a parent, our kids will eventually grow up, leave home, and start to lead their own lives. So handing over control is inevitable. Jump seat leadership is all about embracing that. It's all about focusing on lifting others up, not increasing or maintaining our own power, but empowering others, lifting them up and equipping them such that when the time is right, they can take the lead and we take the step back. And it turns out that when we do that, right here in the present, it creates the most extraordinary opportunities for our team and helps us to progress way quicker than we would otherwise. And it all came back to that story of taking off out of South Francisco. That is a powerful, insane, so many words to describe that story that I probably can't say, right? Like, holy cow, how'd you do that? What? But the first piece, because I think at a high level, I, you know, I love that concept of leading from the jumpsuit or jump seat. But what? What about the times of life or death? What? How, how do you possibly hand over? And, and that's what more of a personal question. How are you able to practice that self-restraint? Because sometimes, you know, when we bring that back to the non-life or death situation that what we might see at the corporate workplace, you might see leaders jumping in and saying, no, 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 I've got that. There might be a, a difficult email from a customer and they just still jump in. And they, you know, they really struggle with even, I would say, non-life or death situations. So how were you able to do nothing? How are you able to well, just actually do that? Because that's, wow. Yeah. Because I would be like, nope, this is my life. Like, you know, just like a lot of people are probably like, this is my job. This is my blink. All of the reasons of why you should have jumped in. But yet you still took a pause. Yeah. And you, you bring a, a great point out, uh, Jen, you know. Most of us and most people listening are probably not going to be in the situation I've just described. However, if they are running a team, if they have their own business, let's say they founded a business 10 years ago and they put their life and soul into that business and they're expanding and they know that they need to delegate and allow others to take the lead, it's just as scary when we're handing over control. But Unless we do hand over control, it's the, it would be the same as just having one pilot. You know, you can only fly from A to B. What we need are lots of pilots who can be flying in the way that we would, would wish. So, you know, it is something that we face. The circumstances might be different, but they're nonetheless very real. And I, I think some of the insights for the answer to your question comes back to that story, which is, how did I get? to be invited onto that jump seat. Just think about that for a moment. Because the relationship, the context had to be very, very special for someone in Callum's position to invite me, his senior, senior boss, who's got way more experience than he has, to invite me to sit on that jump seat. When the easiest thing would have been so it kept me down the back of the other passengers. And I think when we start to dig into that, and this is what we part of what we unpack in the book, it gives us insight into the sort of leader 
that we need to be to create those conditions for our people where we feel where they feel comfortable inviting us onto the jump seat or whatever the equivalent is, you know. Um, and in order to get there, it comes actually back to one of your early questions. You know, there's some, something I've learned about leadership. The most important is about being yourself. It's about being comfortable about who you are. It's about being very clear on what your non-negotiables are. And I describe how to identify your non-negotiables. Non-negotiables are deeper than values. You know, values change. I'm sorry, but they do. You might think you're a courteous person, yeah? But hey, if you're late for a business meeting and as you drive up to the parking lot, there's just one more space, you'll dive into that space, even though out the corner of your eye, you see someone else who's been hunting around for the space, yeah? Now, you might feel bad about it afterwards, but hey, you're not going to be late for that meeting. So what happened to your value of being courteous? Hmm. It's circumstance-based, context-based. Your non-negotiables are much deeper. These are the things which are unshakable in you. I'll describe how to identify these. But these then give us the, the handrail, the guide when we're stepping into the unknown. And they help us in situations of, well, crisis as well. So just like being on that jump seat. You know, you ask, how did I get there? Well, it's all about being able to recognize what triggers fear inside of us and how to better respond to it rather than to react to it, which is what normally we would do. Oh my gosh. What triggers fear in me? Depending on the day, it can be a variety of things, but I love that because I think leadership there is. Whether you're a new leader, whether you are new to an organization, whether you're an existing or tenured leader that's making a new decision that may or may not be favorable, there's fear. I think that's the one, one universal yeah. that we can relate with is that we all are afraid of something, of letting someone down, of failing, well, of yeah. <laughs> doing you the right that, things. So fear is triggered by one of four things. Okay, The, the first fear is triggered by when we sense that our life is on the line. And this is deeply ingrained. It's part of our DNA. You know, It has us jump back when there's an oncoming car that we didn't see until the last minute. And it saves our life. So fear in those circumstances is good. But generally, on a day-to-day -day basis, thankfully, our life is not under threat. But fear then is still triggered by three other things. It's triggered that when we sense that our livelihood our status or our reputation is under threat. Mm. And when fear is triggered because our status, reputation, or livelihood is under threat, it generates a very different reaction, which is generally not helpful at all. It generates a situation where we close down. We start seeing the world as a place of scarcity rather than a place of opportunity. We start seeing it as a binary win-lose, and we got to win at all costs. Instead of thinking of others, we start thinking of ourselves. That becomes our focus. We might become angry, or at the other extreme, we might become timid. None of these things are useful when we're leading ourselves or others. And the biggest thing that comes out is ego. Ego is Greek for I, and we've all seen it. When we've seen others lead by ego, we know when we're leading by ego. And it generally does not turn out well. We start taking decisions which end up hurting others. But here's the good news. We always have a choice. 
we <laughs> always have a choice, okay? And that is to see fear as a warning flag. And rather than react to fear, see it as a prompt to be driven instead by love. Now, when I start talking about love in the business context, people get a little bit twitchy, and that's okay. Let's just let go and embrace it. This is not about running around and hugging trees, you know? <laughs> I'm talking about love as it shows up in business where we think about others. We think about our team. We think about the customers we serve. Instead of seeing the world as a place of scarcity, we see it as a place of opportunity and possibility. And instead of leading with ego, we lead with what I call humble confidence. And humble confidence, it's all about, well, the confidence bit, first of all, it's all about being absolutely clear on where we're strong, resolute on where we're going, absolutely resolute, and ready to take decisions when they need to be taken. But importantly, we have the humility to listen to our team. And whereas someone who's being led by ego is determined to be the one with the answer, a leader who leads with humble confidence is focused instead on asking the important questions and becoming comfortable leading when they don't know the answer. And that's one of the main themes of the book. Crosscom is a global organization dedicated to developing effective leaders. Companies all over the world have seen their managers transformed into leaders through our award-winning and accredited leadership development programs. Our signature BPM program provides interactive management training with a results-oriented curriculum and prime networking opportunities. If you're interested in learning more about our flagship program and developing your managers into leaders, please visit our website to find a leadership trainer near you. Or maybe you yourself have always wanted to train and develop others. Crestcom is a global franchise with ownership opportunities available throughout the world. If you have ever thought about being your own boss, owning your own business, and leveraging your leadership experience to impact businesses and leaders in your community, Crestcom may be the right fit for you. We're looking for professional executives who are looking for a change and want to make a difference in people's lives. Learn more about our franchise opportunity on the Own a Franchise page of our website at crestcom.com. You know, the book talks about three different themes, about commitment, humble confidence, belonging. And, you know, I let's let's unpack those in a greater level because I think it makes me also think, you know, going back to the conversation about ego, is it fear that throws us into ego or are we you know, what else is it that, you know, is it always fear? I don't know if you know, or can say, and I'm not expecting you to know the full answer to this, but from your lived experience, what do you see trigger people into or triggers people to go into a more of an ego response? Is it fear or is it other things? Is it like wanting other people to accept us, which I guess would also be fear. Um, you know, is it always just fear? Um, short answer. Yes. You know, and I, I say that from, uh, not from scientific study. I'm not a scientist. I say this from a practitioner's point of view. You know, I, I've led people in combat. I've led big commercial projects. And you can tell when someone, when their behavior shifts from being sourced from a place of um, love and possibility to a place of fear and scarcity. And um, ego is always generated by fear. I saw this in, a, I was running a workshop some years ago for one of the biggest uh, companies on the planet. 
And I had in the room all of the directors from the board. And ego was present in the room. It was, they were not doing well as a company. Their stock price had fallen through the floor and they'd lost a lot of their reputation. And instead of uh, coming to the table with humble confidence, they came in there with their egos, all trying to have a pop at one another to try and put the other down so as they could protect their own status, reputation, and livelihood. That was ego coming to the fore. You know, when I, I've flown with, um, uh, in the military, you know, I've, I've led formations of, of many aircrafts. What you don't want in that formation is any pilot who's got a big ego. You know, um, you don't want that uh, because they put themselves first instead of their wingman first. Yes. And that's when it falls down. That's when people start to lose their lives. So, yeah. you know, when I talk about ego, when I talk about fear, when I talk about love, um, it comes from working with and observing companies, so in the business world, but also when people's lives are on the line, you know, their life, their livelihood, their status and reputation when it's all on the line. And ego can come out. Gosh, I, I'm sure there are a lot of listeners right now that can already put themselves into that boardroom, into that training where they feel like it's not even a conversation so much as, as, as it's a debate of egos or a debate of, hey, let me show you how I'm good enough or let me show you how my idea is the best idea. And what are the consequences to a team when you show up with ego? I know some of them are probably pretty straightforward, but from your experience, what do you see? If you're just pushing and you're not leading with that humble confidence, what are the consequences that people will feel or the ripple effect of that through the team and organization? Well, first is disengagement, but also it tends to be infectious. Ego tends to be infectious. I, I think one of the most dramatic stories from my book that illustrates what happens when ego is in the driver's seat goes back to um, March 1977 on the island of Tenerife off the, uh, the west coast of Africa. And it was the, uh, the, the scene of the most horrendous air accident the world has ever seen. Two jumbo jets fully packed jumbo jets collided in fog on the runway. One was crossing the runway and the other was trying to take off. 583 people lost their lives that day. And the subs subsequent inquiry identified quite a few factors. One was the, uh, the poor radio communications between the air traffic controllers and the, uh, the aircraft, the KLM jet taking off. But one of the key factors was the ego of the captain of the KLM jet. jet. He was the, uh, a captain by the name of Jakob van Zanten. And Jakob was one of the, the most highly respected, most experienced captains in that airline at the time. He trained other captains. He was literally the poster pilot on all the adverts for the airline. And when they lined up ready to, to take off, uh, he pushed the throttles forward to start the takeoff roll, thinking that they had clearance to take off. Um, but they didn't. And the other, the, the pilot and the flight engineer on, on the, the crew 
was what we call a cockpit gradient. He was so senior in comparison to their time on the, uh, in the airline, their rank, that they felt they couldn't question him. And the result was 583 people lost their lives. The good news, I should say, Jen, out of this is that um, out of that accident, the, the good thing that happened was something called, um, uh, well, cockpit management. It's, it's about how we respond to one another in, on the flight deck of, uh, of an aircraft called crew resource management. And it, it gets rid of um, this, what we call gradient, where you've got a very senior person or a very junior person. Um, it, it creates an environment where the most junior person feels able to speak up. It's called crew resource management. And so that's one good thing that came out of it. And every airline pilot has been taught that since the early 1980s. But yeah, this is at the extreme of what happens when ego comes to the fore. Um, but in businesses and smaller teams, it can have just as a dramatic effect in that people take a step back, they disengage, they just let you get on with it because you know best. Yeah. And they're not part of the solution to the challenges that you're facing. And then you're on a downward slope. Well, I'm curious, what would you say to someone that, you know, because I feel like there was this traditional leadership where ego was actually a very regarded skill or attribute of someone. If they appeared confident or decisive and, you know, maybe more direct or authoritarian, that was more valued. But some of those things are much more into ego, but it's understandable based on where your lived experience might be, but that you have come up learning that. What would you say to someone that says, well, I still got a lot of success with that. And why would I give it up now? Um, good luck. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, that, that's fine. Um, ask your people how they feel about it. You know, here's the thing with ego as well. It, it, it's not just um, poor practice in, in my view. It's a limiting practice because what comes with ego is the belief that you've got to be the person with the answer. Yeah. And if you're the person with the answer, you become the constriction in the pipe. Yeah. Your team can only progress as quickly as your knowledge allows. But look, let, let's not be too hard on ourselves because th this is, again, baked in in terms of our development. When we're at school, we're rewarded for knowing the answer. You know, when we put our hand up, we know the answer. We're rewarded. We then focus on the subjects where we feel we, we know the answer. Uh, and we're inspired to find the answer. We then perhaps go to college, university, and we further specialize, and then we leave, we get into the job market, and we're hired because we're the person who knows the answers. Yeah? <laughs> and if we do really, really well, we're then promoted. And eventually, we get promoted to the point where we're no longer the one who's doing the work. We're leading the experts who are doing the work. And that is very unfamiliar territory. So what, what happens? Fear kicks in because we're outside of our comfort zone and nobody has taught us how to manage this transition where our job is no longer to be the expert. We are managing, leading the experts. And so what do we do? We revert to type. We revert to being, well, no, I've got to know the answer to this. When people come to us with a problem, if we know the answer, we tell them what to do. If we don't know the answer, we say, leave it with me. Yeah, that's a classic. I've done it myself, you know. And 
so people start to rely on waiting for you to tell them what to do, and you become the constriction of the pipe. The opportunity that is jump seat leadership is learning how to be comfortable leading when we don't know the answer and embracing that. Now, this doesn't mean to say that we're weak or timid, not a bit of it. What it looks like in practice is, look, I don't know the answer to this challenge. Let me tell you the reason why we've got to figure it out. And I'm going to support you on my team to give you everything you need so you can work with me to figure out the answer to this challenge that we're facing right now. Are you with me? Yeah. Much, much different environment to work in. And one where you're lifting people up, where people are showing up, where they're working harder because they want to, not because they have to. Right. And that's how you accelerate the progress of your team. So all the people out there who are leading with ego, as I say, best of luck to you. <laughs> you probably advance much quicker if you learned how to lead from the jump seat and learn to lead with humble confidence. Yes, I love that. I mean, and I'll, the last thing that I would even just from what you're saying too, and like what I would add is when you actually give yourself permission to not know all the answers, think about how much you can protect your own mental health in the form of stress, anxiety, burnout, by being able to allow other people to be and offer a solution. But I know we are riding and running through this. I love our conversation, but let's get into the other two themes. So you talk about three themes in the book. One is humble confidence. The next one is commitment. Why is that an important theme? Well, commitment, these three uh, you've mentioned commitment, humble confidence, and belonging. There are three practices. Uh, and practice is, as a word, is important. It's not about being perfect. We're not perfect as human beings. It's about our intention and our trend. You know, that's what's important to, to measure. And so we, we practice and we get better. Commitment is the first practice because commitment is all about figuring out what are your non-negotiables? What are those things that are unshakable. Now, I'll give you an example. Family, for many of us, is something that's a non-negotiable. You know, when I received a phone call about two and a half years ago from my wife, she told me she'd just been involved in a car accident. I dropped everything. I left the business calls. It was only two miles down the road. I was off. Nothing would have stopped me going to her. And many people listening can relate to that. But here's the interesting thing, Jen. The energy that released inside of me. Think about it. I was stepping into the unknown. I didn't know what I was going to find, but there was nothing on this planet which would have got in my way, would have stopped me from going. So identifying your non-negotiables, it's about identifying those other things that have got a similar amount of energy inside of them, because together they create this foundation that can help you move forward even in the face of adversity, even in the face of uncertainty, they act as a handrail. I tell you in the book how to do that. It's through the choices that we make in life. Those are the clues. But when we identify these non-negotiables, they become stands, what we stand for. And we can turn those stands then into action and turn them into commitments, what we're committed. And this isn't you know, an airy-fairy thing. Commitment is a promise that we make to ourselves. Not actually anybody else, to ourselves. You know, you and I could have a contract. We could sign it up. And people say, oh, we're committed now. But I can guarantee that if we wanted to get out of it, we hadn't made that promise to ourselves to follow through, we'd get out of it. 
Okay, so a commitment is a promise we make to ourselves to follow through. And so the first point of the book is helping people to understand those distinctions in language, to identify what their non-negotiables, what their standards are, and how to use them to form commitments to follow through. Because when we practice that, people start to build a relationship with us. It forms what we ultimately call character. It helps us to act consistently. And that helps us not only to lead our own lives well, but to lead others well too. It's the foundation as well of being able to have the courage to lead with humble confidence. You know, uh, So that's commitments, that's humble confidence. Would you like to talk about that or should I dive into belonging? Let's do a little bit more on commitment. I'm curious. You talk about what it looks like. What does commitment look like at work? Because I think many of us could probably relate to the non-negotiable of family. What are examples of maybe non-negotiables that you see that might be successful in the workplace? Sure. Um, so <laughs> let, let me give you a, a story to illustrate this, because I think it's easier to, uh, to grab hold. Uh, I went to university to study two subjects about which I knew nothing. Okay, This was uh, 18 years old. Uh, electronic engineering, computing. I knew nothing. This was in 1981, good heavens, a long time ago, right? But the reason I went to university to study those subjects was that I figured I'd be able to get a really well-paid job at the end of it. And that was important. It was important because at the time, both my parents had lost their jobs. Um, money was very, very short. Me going to university actually helped because at the time it was paid for by the government here in the UK, so it was, it was, it was no cost to my parents. And I figured that it would reduce the burden on them, and also I'd be in a position to help them afterwards. Okay, So that formed a non-negotiable in me looking back. I said it's about the choices we make in life, and this was a key choice of mine. And the non-negotiable for that uh, event was uh, that stayed with me is the notion of self-sufficiency. I don't want to be a burden on anyone else. I want to be self-sufficient and I want to be able to be in a position to help others. So that's one of my non-negotiables. Now, halfway through my degree course, something else happened. Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands down in the South Atlantic. The Falkland Islands, tiny islands, which are a British territory, and the people there consider themselves to be British. But at the time Argentina invaded, they imposed their will on those people. Now, I knew hardly anything about the politics, but I was incensed by the fact that someone was imposing their will on others who were unable to help themselves. And so I left university mid-degree to join the Royal Air Force um, because I wanted to be part of a team that in future could help others in that sort of situation. Now, what that pointed to, that choice, is something that is another non-negotiable, which is the notion of mutual respect. And if I see or sense anyone not mutually respected or mutual respect not occurring, that incenses me, that drives me forward. So how does that look in the business world? Well, those two things, those non-negotiables turn into stands, which give me guidance, show me the way when I'm treading into uncertain territory, when I don't know what to do, uh, where there isn't a roadmap. Those and other non-negotiables help me to figure out what direction to, to head in and help me lead my team. I love that. And it's the foundation, I think, if you're a new leader, I love that you talk about finding your non-negotiable because I think whether you're an existing leader or a new leader, 
When you're a new leader, this could be one of the first places that you can build your confidence within yourself. Absolutely. Uh, understanding what are the things? How do you want to treat others? How do you want to be treated? What are the things that you're not going to stand for? Um, and you know, what are the things that you might be like, okay, like I don't love that, but I'm not going to also, you know, jump over if something like that happens too. Cause I imagine there's also a place like, is there a is there a magic number of non-negotiables that you think are helpful? Like, is it, is it three, is it five, or is it just all about consistency? It's about consistency. It's about uh, where those non-negotiables have come from. And they, they come from those choices that we make in life, the big crossroads. Uh, but actually, here's something right now that people can do. Think about a time where something has really triggered you. And perhaps you felt like you were getting angry or uh, annoyed in some way. Take a moment, pause and reflect on that. It's probably because you feel strongly against something. Okay? Yeah. Now take a moment to turn that coin over and recouch in terms of what you feel strongly for. Okay? So in the example of the reason I left university, you know, I, I was against what was being imposed on the, uh, the British population down the Falkland Islands. When I turned that coin over, what I found was my stand for mutual respect. Okay. So th this is something that um, we, we, can, we can do right now. You know, beneath every complaint is a commitment for something. And it's something that, that's a really helpful thing. That one's not in the book, but it's really helpful <laughs> in a business, a team situation. If someone comes to you with a complaint, rather than trying to brush it under the carpet, sweep it away. Ask questions to dig deeper and find what's the underlying commitment. What's really important to that person that they've had the courage to put their hand up and stand out of line and say, hey, I'm complaining about this. Because when we can find that underlying commitment, instead of squashing the complaint, we can harness that energy that comes with it and work with the underlying commitments to achieve something remarkable. Yes, I love this. This is where we can vision the success. What are we working towards? Where do we want to bring people along? I love that. Oh my gosh. And now we've got to go into the, the third practice, belonging, which I just love that this is a part of your book because belonging is so incredibly important to everyone. Yet I think it's often an overlooked area that people just kind of think like, does that really matter at work? I mean, they might know it at some level that it matters, but we don't really look at it as a strategy because what? Like they should be happy they have a job. <laughs> but tell me what you mean by belonging. Well, as human beings, we all want to belong. We do. Yeah. Um, you know, even going back to school, you know, we, we want to find the group where we belong. And uh, actually, my, my children now, they're, they're both grown up. But my daughter, when she was in her teens, here's something that any parents out there can, can relate to. You know, how do you get your teenage daughter to put her dirty laundry in the basket? <laughs> yeah, am I right? It, this is a, a challenge. It's actually a leadership challenge. How do you get her to choose to put that laundry in the basket? Well, what's behind this? is, uh, well, you can gain some extra insight because the time when she will choose to put it in the basket is what if she's going out the weekend with her group of friends and she wants to wear a particular outfit that needs washing? Heck, she'll put it in the basket. She might even go and wash it herself. Okay, so what's that all about? 
because she strives, she wants to nurture this sense of belonging. Yeah? When people feel they belong, and in this case of teenage daughters, is wanting to belong to their group of friends by expressing the, through the fashion they're, they're wearing, you know, that identity. It's such a powerful driving force. And in just the same way as it works at a fashion level with teenage daughters, it actually works in the work environment too. And I give an example in the book of this working at scale with an incredible company called ASOS, um, British-based company. They've got about 4,500 people, average age 27, and they are in on online fashion retail. That's what they do. But the whole story is in there. But they nurture a sense of belonging because when people feel that they belong, they want to stay, step up. They want to take responsibility. They want to start to lead in exactly the same way as our teenage daughter starts to lead by choosing to put washing in the laundry basket because they want to be a part of the group that they want to belong to. Yeah. So belonging is hugely important. As leaders, um, we do well to nurture that sense of belonging. And the way we nurture a sense of belonging is that we show that we care. Not empathy. Empathy is fine, but it's not enough. Empathy is, yeah, I get it. I can see it from your point of view. No, caring is showing, <laughs> well, it's showing that we care at a human level. And the way that we show that we care is by giving people our time. It doesn't need to be much time. You know, busy executives out there, I know your diary, your calendar is full, but you give your time. One of my most challenging leadership roles was leading 200 people during the Iraq war. And out in the desert, we were there four and a half months, and we flew large, unarmed, undefended aircraft. We got shot at quite a lot, and that was quite irritating. But, you know, I had 200 people that I needed to, to care. And what that looked like was, well, sometimes I'd sit down with a coffee on the floor, back against the wall with one of the most junior people in my team, chatting with them, you know, how's things at home? Everything all right? I, I hear you had a new baby recently. You know, how are they doing? Um, I remember during our time, I had three people whose grandparents were dying and we moved heaven and earth to get them back in time. Yeah, that's just something that we did. Now, you don't need to make a song and dance about it. And we didn't. But when people instinctively sense that you care, they are willing to contribute more. And so if your aim is to progress more quickly and further with your team, you need to care. You need to nurture the sense of belonging. Oh my gosh. And that's, I just think of so many different examples and I am seeing more companies practice this, even in interviewing. I had um, an organization that I recently am working with them now to facilitate. And one of the first things that they had said to me is we just want you to be you. We want you to be you, your unique self. We don't want you to watch our current facilitator and try to be like them. We want you to be you because we know that you provide an individual perspective that makes the total unique. And that will probably stick with me for the rest of my life because I have never up until that moment, two months ago, three months ago, actually a little bit longer than that, ever had an employer actually bring that up in an interview process. And to now see it as I'm in that company to see how true that is, 
Yes, you're absolutely right. It makes me work that much harder. I just went through two and a half weeks of tech challenges, things that I could have just said, oh, I don't know, maybe you guys could figure this out or you do this. But I called every single person on my end, my provider, I upgraded my, you know, I did so much all because they believed in me and they created the right place. But if they didn't maybe have that approach, I'm not sure I would have invested in 20 hours of my tech challenges, investing in a new computer, buying a motive, all that stuff, because it wouldn't have felt like my ma- my contributions or even why that would matter. Because I'm like, oh, they probably are fine anyways. Like we can do the work around. But because they cared, I wanted to make it work the way that they wanted to. And so- well, and, and here's the thing, you know, what is it that you're doing when you're you're spending some time with people? It, it can be the fleeting moment. And the more senior senior you are in a company, by the way, the more meaningful it is. Yeah, those few moments, because people know instinctively how busy you are. But in those few moments, what are you doing? You're lifting people up. And that goes to the heart of jump seat leadership. Because when you lift people up, they then start to choose to lead. And take responsibility and that's when when people choose to do things it is so much more powerful than when we rely on telling people to do things yes peter thank you so much for all of your insights today i even love that empowering people to choose empowering people to take that responsibility leading from the jump seat how to create extraordinary opportunities by handing over control peter how can people get in touch with you where can they purchase your book well, my website is leadingfromthejumpseat.com, uh, and there's lots of videos and resources on there. Uh, the book is available, paperback, hardcover, audiobook, ebook, in all the usual places, including Amazon and bookstore.org. Uh, and you can find me on social media, on LinkedIn, at Peter Docker, and Twitter, Peter.Docker, and Instagram. I've had a go at TikTok, but you know, Jenna, I don't think I'm quite up to speed on TikTok yet. <laughs> You know what? Let, let's stick to uh, to what we know for, for the time being. Um, but uh, yeah, so you can find me. <laughs> oh my gosh, Peter, thank you so much for just, again, your time, your expertise, your passion. And I love that. I'm so excited. Leading from the jump seat, pick it up now. Thank you again, Peter. It was so great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Jan. It's been great. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Peter Docker. And if you want to know more, if you want to get your copy of his book, you can head on over to leadingfromthejumpseat.com. Now, if you know someone that could benefit from hearing Peter's message, as I feel like everyone could, don't forget to share this episode with them. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave us a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Until next time, 